welcome to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today my guest is Dr. Sam Wong. Dr. Wong is a professor of neuroscience at Princeton University, where his lab investigates how the brain learns from sensory experience in adulthood and in development with relevance for autism. A lot of their work focuses on a part of the brain called the cerebellum. This is an interesting part of the brain located near the back of your skull, and in many ways we've only recently begun to understand it in detail. Dr. Wong and I talked about the cerebellum and what we're learning about its functions, as well as how it's tied to autism and what the causes and nature of autism in the brain actually are. This includes both the genetic and environmental risk factors for autism and how to think about treatment. We also talked about another side to his work, which focuses on using data and science to help repair our democracy. One of the ways they do that is by helping people understand the extent to which their congressional districts are shaped by gerrymandering. And so we got into that a little bit towards the end. I also made a mistake. I've been using some new audio software and tools, and I had my audio settings incorrectly set up for this episode, so I wasn't actually speaking into my microphone, so I don't sound quite as crisp as I should, but you can still hear what I'm saying. Other than that, if you want to sign up for the free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter, where I provide podcast updates, such as upcoming guests, I alert you to interesting research in the science world and point you to other interesting things related to the topics I discuss on the podcast, you can sign up at mindandmatter.substack.com. And you can find that either by going to the link directly in the episode description or going through some of the links I have in my Twitter and social media. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Professor Sam Wong. Professor Sam Wong, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Can you describe for everyone what you do and what you study in your lab? Yes, uh, my name is Sam Wong and I'm a professor of neuroscience at Princeton University. I'm here at Princeton right now. And uh, in my laboratory, we study how sensory experience teaches the brain in adult life and also during development. And we focus on the cerebellum. Um, the work has implications for autism. Hmm. So for those who don't know, what is the cerebellum? What part of the brain are we talking about here? Uh, well, the cerebellum is uh, the little brain, and it's uh, it's in the back right here. And so it's right here at the base of the skull and the occiput, like if I go like this. Um, and it's uh, this little wrinkled structure that's about one-seventh of the brain in humans. Um, it's actually about one-seventh of the brain in almost all mammals, uh, larger in certain mammals, which is kind of interesting by itself. Uh, but uh, it's thought to be important for sensation uh, when it's damaged movement becomes jerky, speech becomes unnatural, uh, and sometimes um, cognitive processes go off track. Hmm. So you mentioned it's about one-seventh of the brain. Is that in terms of just area or volume? Uh, volume. So the brain's about three pounds in weight. Uh, what is that? About 1,300 cubic centimeters. And about, um, about 200 of that is um, cerebellum. So about one-seventh of the volume of the brain is cerebellum. What if, um, what if you count based on the number of neurons? Oh, the cerebellum's got a lot of neurons. And so a typical human brain has about, 
uh, it varies, but let's say about 80 billion neurons in a typical human brain. And over half of those, uh, about 50 or 60 billion of those neurons are in the cerebellum. So it's packed with itty bitty neurons called granule cells. So it's got some of the simplest cells in the brain. It's also got some of the mo more complex cells in the brain. There are these crazy tree-like structures called Purkinje cells, and uh, it's got those as well. So it's got both the simplest and most complex cells of the brain. Hmm. So it's packed, packed with neurons, even though it's oh, yeah. about one seventh of the volume. And you mentioned some of the things that start to happen when this area gets damaged. So can you talk a little bit more about what we know about its function based on what happens when there's physical damage to this area? Yeah, some of the earliest knowledge that we have about what cerebellum is good for comes from uh, lesion or injury experiments. And this goes back centuries. Uh, but a good example of this would be um, in World War I. So in World War I, <clears throat> helmets were not very well designed. There are these kind of like dish-like helmets that go kind of on top of your head and don't actually go down here. And so it turns out that, un unfortunately, there are a lot of cases of uh, people who basically got the cerebellum shot off. And there was this British physician named Gordon Holmes who looked at them and said, you know, these people have a lot of things in common. They, they, they survive, um, they can still walk, but their movements become jerky. Uh, they, uh, their gait becomes unsteady. They, they're not so good at balance. Um, and all those things like uh, ballistic movements, where if you try to make a gentle movement, you go, woo, and your, and your movement um, is out of control. And so that was uh, the most obvious sign that came from cerebellar patients. And this has been known for centuries, but Holmes did an unusually good job of studying it because um, warfare became advanced enough and battlefield medicine became advanced enough that people would get these injuries and survive. Uh, so yeah, jerky movement. Also, uh, dysarthria, which is um, kind of halting and jerky speech, where someone will 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 repeat themselves and become inarticulate, like what I just did then. Hmm. So World War One, they didn't have helmets that covered all of the skull, so people were getting more or less selective cerebellum damage. Yeah. So is it fair to say that this part of the brain is not necessary for living? It's not like the brainstem or something where you'll die if you're missing it. It is not absolutely necessary for life in the same way that prefrontal cortex is not necessary for life. But in under a wild situation, you would not survive all that long if your cerebellum was damaged. And so it's not, uh, you know, you'll still have a heartbeat, you can still walk, um, but uh, your biological fitness would not be super duper. Okay. And then what about, um, so a lot of this, and, and historically, I, I remember learning about the cerebellum as being this this area that was very, very much about motor stuff. Is that mainly our understanding today or does it do other things as well? Um, and the most obvious signs are motor signs, but, uh, but as I mentioned, speech becomes halting. Uh, and there's this syndrome that emerges when you, um, when you get damaged, when you get injured in certain parts of your cerebellum, uh, specifically the posterior cerebellum, which is kind of the part kind of towards your spinal cord and also sort of towards the sides and the hemispheres, uh, there are um, cognitive problems. So for instance, if I ask you to draw a complex figure, just to copy a complex figure with pencil and paper, um, maybe that figure, you'll be able to draw the parts of it, but you won't be able to assemble it into a coherent whole. Um, another example would be um, injury at birth, uh, injury to the cerebellum at birth, um, is leads to a dramatically enhanced likelihood of autism. Mm -hmm. And so there are seemingly other things that it does that are not just controlling movement. And, um, and that that's, there's been more and more evidence in the last 10, 15 years 
that these other functions are also there, but just harder to notice because the thing you see in front of you when you have a patient is uh, is the jerking movement. But uh, but neurologists, if you if you ask neurologists, is there something else about them? They'll say things like, oh yeah, like halting speech or disrupted. Um, uh, for instance, you, you can look up a thing called cerebellar cognitive affective syndrome. And, uh, and there's this neurologist at Harvard, uh, Jeremy Schmaman, who's made a career out of looking into that particular syndrome and cataloging exactly what goes wrong when people get cerebellar injury in, in, in the cognitive and emotional domains. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned autism as well. So I want to get there, but I want to paint uh, a bit more of a picture of this structure for people. So how would you describe the, the cellular level wiring diagram for this brain structure? And what does that tell us about the kind of computations that might be happening here? Um, you know, it's this pretty remarkable structure. It, it, it resembles this thing that, um, that computational neuros, uh, computational scientists have called a perceptron. So basically, um, you know what, I might, um, I might go ahead and take you up on the offer of, of doing screen sharing since you said that we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see if I can do that. Hold on for a second. So let me, let me have the permission to do that. Okay. Go for it. Okay. So if I do this and I, uh, let's see if I can do this. This, this is going to be a little, there we go. Okay. Um, so does this look like, okay here? Yeah. Okay. And so if you look here, um, the right hand is a cross section of a cerebellum. And you can see here that it's got this really characteristic layered structure where it's folded like, you know, uh, we're used to seeing folds on the surface of the human brain. Uh, most mammals have a folded cerebellum and it's got the structure where it's got most of the input comes into this kind of purplish layer, which is called the granule layer. And those granule, that granule layer is where those 50 billion neurons are. So most of the neurons of the brain are in this purple layer. And then they form synapses onto Purkinje cells, which is this green layer on the right. And that green layer is the Purkinje cell layer. And just one example of a Purkinje cell is this crazy Rococo structure on the left, which is one Purkinje cell where you can see from its branching structure, it has the capacity to get lots and lots of inputs. And so a single Purkinje cell might have several hundred thousand inputs. And so basically the cerebellum structure, the wiring diagram of the cerebellum is one in which information comes from all over the brain, goes to the granule cells, 50 billion neurons in us. And then those 50 billion neurons then their output converges onto a few tens of millions of Purkinje cells, which have this complicated structure that's shown on the left side of the screen. And so it's this funnel inf information that gets narrower and narrower. And then these 10 million guys on the left uh, or whatever number it is, uh, then they send information back out towards the rest of the brain uh, in, along this axon that you can kind of see. Uh, the bottom of this image here has a pipette, which I use to fill this neuron. And then the little wiggly thing there is uh, is a is an axon coming out of the neuron. Okay, so for those just listening on the right, we've got a cross section of the cerebellum, and the cerebellum. How, how would you describe it visually? People, I think people describe it as almost looking like cauliflower or something like that. It looks like the cross section of a cauliflower. What we have here on the right is a let's call it a fluorescent multicolored cauliflower here. So imagine a cauliflower in cross section and imagine the stemmy bits of the cauliflower are purple and that's where fibers come into the cerebellum and then there's a layer of deep purple and that's where the granule cells are. And then kind of the rind of the cauliflower all along the edge is where the Purkinje cells are. And so if you were to visualize this cauliflower section, for those of you listening on audio, that, that very folded rind on the outside is where the Purkinje cells sit. 
And these Purkinje cells, you've got an image of one here on the left, and you know there's a cell body with many, 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 many elaborate branches. So these are where the inputs come into the cell. And, and so what you've told us, if I understood correctly, is that there are neurons, brain cells in the brain from all over, more or less, that are sending inputs to the cerebellum. And so there's this massive sort of convergence or funneling of all of those inputs into the cerebellum and ultimately onto these things called Purkinje cells, which I'm guessing can accept many, many, many inputs. Yeah, these Purkinje cells are crazy. So it's uh, for, uh, for those of you who are not um, looking on video, you got to look these things up. It's, it's spelled P-U-R-K-I-N-J-E. And these neurons, they're like when Cajal, the great neuroanatomist, um, studied them, he said that they resembled the espaliered trees that one sometimes finds in the south of France. And what he meant was when people grow trees in southern France, they will sometimes prune them so that they grow in a plane. And the, this plane looks like a hand. I'm holding my hand for, for people who are watching. And then and the, and the whole thing is about 200 microns wide, the breadth of the hand. And if you turn sideways, it's just about 10, 15 microns thick. And so the whole thing looks like this flat arbor. And this flat arbor is incredibly Baroque. I mean, I would say, um, I love saying the word Rococo. Um, so it's like, it's not just Baroque, it's Rococo. It's like this crazy curlicued structure where all the dendrites have like little hairy things on them that are the dendritic spines where the synaptic inputs come in. And the whole thing is just remarkably complex. And, um, and it receives input from those 50 billion neurons that we were talking about a minute ago. Hmm. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of neurons in the cerebellum. They're receiving this convergence of inputs from all over the brain. And you yeah. mentioned that something about this architecture is similar to what computational scientists call the perceptron. So, so what exactly is that? So the perceptron is this old idea about um, how you would ever recognize um, a pattern. And so it's a pattern recognizer. And in some ways, the perceptron is, uh, it's sort of the original ancestor of uh, now when we do uh, things like um, machine learning and we build um, a simple neural network that recognizes things like whether it be Google Translate or, or whatever it is that we do um, using artificial intelligence. That, um, that perceptron, the idea is that Purkinje cells, these very branched things, learn to recognize patterns by picking inputs from this vast array of granule cells that come in. And so each Purkinje cell has a couple hundred thousand inputs. And the idea is that by picking just a few hundred thousand of the inputs, a few of the hundred thousand inputs that come into the Purkinje cell, those patterns then are what the cerebellum can learn. And by changing the weights of those, those connections through a process called synaptic plasticity, um, by changing the strength of those connections, then Purkinje cells are able to learn from the environment and learn combinations of input that, um, that can help uh, coordinate some motor process or a cognitive process. And the idea, and the idea would be that it does it in real time. And so in, in the con context of biology, it can do it in real time over and over and over, just instant after instant after instant, constantly responding to the world. I see. So, so it's not it's not simply that these cells are learning associations that will necessarily remain stable for a long time, but they're sort of learning them on the fly. Yeah. Yeah. So the cerebellum gets, it's basically in this big loop with the rest of the brain. So if you look at the, the way the cerebellum is arranged uh, um, compared with the rest of the brain, it actually um, is in a loop and I'm changing the diagram, which we can talk about in a moment, but the output of the cerebellum goes out into the brainstem it can go down to the spinal cord and can also go up to um, the forebrain, to the neocortex. 
And the neocortex is a, one of the major sources of input that comes in on those to those 50 billion cells. And so the whole thing is like this loop where it's a two-way conversation where information goes up from the cerebellum to the neocortex, comes down from the neocortex through the pons back into the cerebellum. And so it's this constant closed loop of activity, uh, almost like a feedback circuit. Hmm. And can you talk a little bit about how the structure of the circuit might relate to, um, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned what happens in an adult when you damage the cerebellum. Can you contrast that with what might happen developmentally here? Like what is this, is cerebellum doing anything um, over the course of development to sort of teach or learn from other parts of the brain? Yeah, so uh, the brain, generally speaking, um, mammalian brains generally develop in a back-to-front manner so that the brain stem and the cerebellum develop earlier than, say, uh, thalamus and neocortex. And so the general pattern of mammalian development in all mammals is back-to-front. And so consequently, the cerebellum and brainstem are ready pretty early. So, for example, if you encounter a newborn baby, um, you know, the baby has certain reflexes and she can do things. Um, and that, and at some level, what you're encountering when you meet a new newborn baby is you're encountering this little brainstem that is capable of doing brainstem and some cerebellar things. And as babies mature in the first year of life, there's this proliferation of connections in the in the in the court in the cerebral cortex, and that proliferation is like uh, tens of millions of synapses per second forming in the first year of life, and so one possibility. Um, for what the cerebellum may do in development is that it might act as a guide to help shape all that circuitry. So the thing, uh, let me, let me rewind and say the thing we know for sure is that the, the cerebral cortex is proliferating at a mad pace, tens of millions of connections per second around age one, uh, the, the density of synapses peaks. And then there's a pruning process where the connections get start getting trimmed away. And that whole process of proliferation and, and pruning is how our brains become shaped to do all the things that we do, uh, you know, to be adapted to whatever environment we grow up in. So we know that that happens. And then to get into the speculative, uh, what my lab thinks, uh, we believe that the cerebellum might play a role in shaping that pruning. The idea is that you imagine like a topiary where all these connections grow and then somebody has to prune those back and what we imagine is that the cerebellum might be part of the process by which that topiary gets trimmed back. And, and why do you say that is, is um, if you take out the cerebellum experimentally or, or you um, mess with its function during development, do you see um, abnormalities in what gets pruned elsewhere in the brain? Yeah, there's a few things that happen. So one thing, first off, let's start with the human symptom, which is that if you look at um, uh, cases where uh, there's a difficult birth and, uh, and the mom has a difficult birth and there's a bleed in the cerebellum. Uh, there have been case studies of cerebellar bleeds in neonates, uh, you know, kids at birth. And those kids, um, about half the time, by the time they reach age two, are autistic. They get scored as being on the spectrum. Uh, and that's work done by um, Catherine Limperopoulos at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., um, so that's, that's a clinical observation, but then if you look at animals that have unusual, um, uh, you know, genetic or other alterations to cerebellum, my lab has some evidence that when you look in mice that have, uh, cerebellum specific alterations, their dendrites are, have more connections. And so we have some evidence where if we count the dendrites on the, 
uh, count the synapses on the dendrites of neocortical neurons, we can see that there are denser connections. I see. So the idea is there's an abnormality in the cerebellum, and a result of that seems to be that there are actually more connections, perhaps too many connections elsewhere in the brain. Yeah, and this this could account for something that people who work on autism have known for a while, which is that um, there seems to be something that doesn't get fully, uh, there's some kind of pruning or, or, or refinement process that doesn't happen fully in kids with autism. The original observation was kids with autism at age one seem to have kind of large heads. Um, and that seemed like a pretty crude observation. Um, but then uh, if you look at MRI, their, their, their the thickness of their uh, gray matter and their cerebral cortical sheet, the thickness seems to increase a little bit faster um, in, um, and get trimmed down um, slower in kids with autism. And so there's something about the growth process of the cerebral cortex of autistic kids that, um, that seems to be overgrowth or under pruning. Uh, and I would say that that's an observation that's been around for, uh, for a few years now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I believe I've read that there's at least one major hypothesis around autism, which has to do with um, the autistic brain more or less having many more synapses than a normal brain. It sounds like perhaps that's true. Yes, I think I would say that there's pretty good evidence for that at this point. Um, and just to back away from, to get off of the topic of cerebellum for a bit, it, it's generally known that that pruning process depends on experience and activity. One of the major principles of how our brains develop is that we go through this period of um, a sensitive period, what's called a sensitive period of development, where um, our brains are receptive to experience and are able to change in response, whether it be the sounds of a language or other environmental events, like say, um, yeah, learning a language was, would be a perfect example. <clears throat> and we are, uh, receptive to that experience for a certain period of life. And then at some point, our brains become less receptive and it becomes harder to change in response to that. And the classic example of this is work done by Hubel and Wiesel uh, back in the 60s, I believe, and uh, uh, I think in the 70s, where they studied visual development. And they found that the visual part of the cerebral cortex was strongly dependent on visual input. And that if visual input did not come in, then the, the circuitry did not um, get refined properly. Hmm. And so we've, we've already been talking about autism a bit. How would you, how would you define what autism is for a non neuroscientist? Autism is so interesting. It was discovered in I think 1943 or is defined in 1943 by a, a, a psychiatrist named Leo Connor, K A N N E R. And autism is defined by uh, let's say, um, aloneness and sameness. And so, um, and so if we think about what, um, what kids with autism are like, they, um, they're alone. So they have difficulties with language. And so they have difficulty communicating. They also have difficulty getting inside the heads of other people, like understanding other people's motivations, uh, other people's, um, states of mind. And so that they're alone uh, in that way as well. And then there's a sameness where autistic kids really want things to be the same. And so if you meet a uh, a child who might be at risk for autism, maybe uh, uh, let's say you meet a child who only likes one toy and that's the toy that he likes, or maybe uh, he's being say pushed to a preschool in the morning and he gets upset if any other route is taken to the school. And so autistic uh, kids often have a real liking for sameness. 
And, uh, and when you put these two things together, aloneness and sameness, these are criteria that, uh, that uh, are used to, uh, to um, discover children who, are, who have what's called autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. And so is it, truly, um, is it truly a spectrum here? And at some point, the, diagnostic, the diagnosis is made that, that we're going to call this child autistic? Or is it truly a spectrum? I guess that's the question. Um, yeah, so there's a saying in the autism community, uh, if you've met one kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism. And the idea there is that um, kids are just different from each other. So maybe one kid might have a real um, sensory sensitivity where she might not like particular sounds. Another kid might not like the touch of new clothing. Another kid might um, might actually have those issues, but in fact, be able to speak quite coherently and at length. And, uh, and when we have a child who has the signs of autism, but actually can speak, that's called Asperger syndrome. And so all these different kinds of things are, are broadly, if you look in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they are together lumped as a single thing, autism spectrum disorder. And so there's an aspect here, it seems to me, of um, something to do with how sensory processing is, is happening. You mentioned, and others have mentioned before, that um, children with autism often have um, some sort of sensory deficit, but, but it's actually, it tends to be in the direction of being hypersensitive to sensory inputs. How, is that true? And is that related to the observation that there's actually an excess of synapses in the brain? Uh, you are correct that hypersensitivity is a major feature of autism. So, you know, no, no, t- no two kids are, with autism are exactly alike, but it is commonly observed that they are hypersensitive to sensory input. So for example, uh, like I said, um, I mean, there's some pretty well-known essays by, um, uh, by people with autism. I, I've written a b- popular book, Welcome to Your Brain, in which uh, my co-author Sandra Ammon and I, uh, Sandra and I write about the kinds of hypersensitivities that occur. Like maybe a plane sounding, passing overhead sounds so loud that the kid, the person has to hold their ears because it's just so loud or, or maybe just a door closing or something sounds like Nail, chalk, fingernails on a chalkboard. And so sensory hypersensitivity seems to be quite common. And you can imagine um, there's this, um, there are these two um, psychologists, uh, cognitive scientists, Frances- Francesca Hape and Uta Frith. And they have this idea. Uh, I mean, they're not the only ones who have this idea, but I think they've been real leaders in forming the idea that all this sensitivity to the world just makes you really immediately focused on right now what's happening in front of you in the world you can't focus on things that happened before. You can't focus on things that are uh, in some past or other context. And you get so stuck on that, that you become very focused on the present and you just have difficulties with broader context. And you can imagine that if the world becomes sensory, you know, extreme, like or intense, that it might shape the way your brain develops. And so this has been a, this is a, I would call it a major hypothesis for where autism comes from. So sort of on this theme of of where it comes from, you mentioned something interesting earlier that had to do with cerebellar damage that happens uh, during the birth process sometimes. Can you give us an idea of the current state of knowledge for the causes of autism? And in particular, the relative contributions between genetics or in utero causes or environmental factors during or after birth? Oh yeah, glad to talk about that. Let's see, so let me just show you another slide. Let's see if I can get this done correctly. Um, I hope I can do this. You know, it's just so 
Zoom is so fraught, but hopefully this shows up on the screen. Mm. Uh, and so if you look at one way to think about factors that may cause autism is to think about how much a factor in the environment or in the genetics of a person increase the odds of autism. And so the top factor by far of um, uh, for the risk of autism is genetic. Um, if a kid uh, has an identical twin who's on the spectrum, then it's a better than 50-50 chance than that kid himself uh, is also on the spectrum. And so having an identical twin, in other words, sharing all your genome with somebody um, is a powerful predisposition for autism. Even sharing half your genome um, increases the odds of autism, um, say in a fraternal twin, uh, by tenfold. And so these, uh, and I'm showing a slide right now for anyone who's watching on video, the light blue bars here on this slide are factors that are predominantly transmitted through DNA, where it's either sharing all your genome, an identical twin, sharing half your genome, a fraternal twin. Uh, also things like say having a parent with mental illness or having a parent who's uh, over the age of 40, those are smaller um, risk ratios, but they also have a risk ratio that's significantly greater than one. And so really genetics is, is a powerful predisposer to autism. Uh, and then there are also environmental influences. Uh, we talked about cerebellar injury. Um, cerebellar injury doesn't happen very often, uh, but when it does happen, it's a pretty large risk factor, uh, 30 or 40 fold. Uh, and there's other risk factors that have to do with uh, adverse experience in early life, um, um, being brought up in, a, in an orphanage where you get no social input or mom getting stuck in a hurricane strike zone or other kind of very stressful situation during pregnancy. Um, these are also um, stress factors that um, stresses that may increase the odds of autism. And so uh, dwelling for a moment on the cerebellar injury at birth. So, so for those just listening, we're seeing this really interesting bar graph um, showing the things that might put you at higher risk for autism. Number two is cerebellar injury at birth. And this can have a big impact is what the graph is showing us. Is that typically that we notice at birth that the cerebellum is abnormal in some way, or is there actually injury that happens during birth and the cerebellum is somehow more exposed than other areas of the brain? Cerebellar injuries at birth are uh, not that common. If you look through a whole bunch of case studies of difficult births and so on, uh, cerebellar injuries are only a small fraction of all births. Uh, and so, so one has to actually do a research study to, to find this out. And there have been several groups that have done this. Uh, one I mentioned before, this um, uh, this woman, Catherine Limperopoulos and Andre Duplessis, uh, they did it. Uh, there are others who have uh, approached it as well. There are other ways that the cerebellum can, uh, can be damaged. For instance, congenital, congenitally, uh, there are certain kind of malformations of the brain. Uh, one's called Dandy Walker syndrome. Uh, there's another one called Joubert syndrome. Uh, but when you look these things up, they also um, lead to cerebellar um, malformation and lead to autism uh, diagnosable by age two. And so the idea is that if you notice uh, in cases where these cerebellar abnormalities are noticed at or around birth, then if you track those kids by age two, they are quite often, um, they quite often show developmental um, differences that, that add up to autism. And so what this graph is showing us overall and, and what you've told us so far is that genetics play a big role in the development of autism, are there any uh, deeper connections to make with the particular types of genes and where they're expressed? Um, for example, are, are, are there certain genes that you can associate directly with the cerebellum? Are these genes that are involved in things like plasticity and development? Yes, this is great. Um, 
this is a great question. Um, there, by now, researchers who work on human genetics have found hundreds of genes that uh, whose variation increase the risk for autism. And so there are a few of those genes that are called syndromic, where just one gene dramatically increases the risk of autism. Uh, and then there's lots and lots, uh, as I said, hundreds that are uh, that that increase the risk of autism by a modest amount. Um, and these are called common variants because in fact, we all have them, uh, or not all of us, but many, many of us have these variants. And so in any given population, um, you know, like it could be that something like half the population has these common variants that in most people do not have an effect, um, but increase the risk of autism. And the idea is that these are not say, you know, a protein getting messed up entirely, but maybe there'll be a variant where the more of the protein gets made or less of the protein or the protein gets regulated a little bit differently. Um, and many of these proteins are set are expressed at synapses. And so one common theme that emerges in a lot of, um, autism uh, genetics is the fact that many of these uh, these genes are in fact synaptic proteins, uh, which suggests that there's something about synaptic, I mean, you know, the way I'm saying it, it sounds kind of obvious. The brain is composed of synapses and does things with its synapses. And so maybe we shouldn't be super duper surprised that genes that regulate synaptic proteins could play a role in autism. But anyway, that's, that's what's been discovered so far. Hmm. Interesting. And so there's this other, you know, we, we mentioned cerebellar damage during the birth process. There's a lot of things on this graph that we've talked about besides the genetics that imply a developmental component to this. Um, a couple that I think are worth dwelling on, well, one that's worth dwelling on is two of these risk factors here that I'm looking at. They're a bit more modest, but still here, a father or a mother that are older. So what's going on there? Is it, uh, is anything interesting happening that has to do with the parent's age? Yeah, so just to orient people who can't see the graph, um, this is a graph showing that the risk factor, let's say that the risk of autism in the general population is 1x. Um, what this graph shows is the risk associated if some other factor is present. And so for example, just to orient you, um, uh, a genetic risk might be anywhere between 10x and 50x. And so those are big risks. So as you say, uh, Nick, the, um, the there are some smaller risks on here. Um, and we hear about these because there's something that we can, they are risks that we can do something about. Um, when, uh, if, if mom waits until after the age of 35 to, uh, to have a baby, then there's a very modest risk. It's 1.3 X, uh, relative to the general population of 1.0 X. Or if the father is over 40 years of age, then the risk is 1.4 X again, relative to the general population of 1.0 X. And so, you know, these get talked about, right? It, it'll be, you know, you, it'll be something like, you know, honey, you haven't had a kid yet. Did you know, I saw in the newspaper that, and then it'll be something about this risk factor. Mm -hmm. So what's going, what's, what could be going on here is that as we get older for various reasons that are different in men and women, as we get older, um, th there can be alterations in DNA, in DNA that accumulate over time. Uh, in the case of the father, since sperm are generated throughout life, those sperm may be generated um, to and have new, uh, you know, de novo mutations. In the case of the mother, since uh, girls are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have, then those eggs may uh, uh, acquire cumulative um, DNA damage. And so the idea would be one possible explanation for this is that that cumulative alteration to DNA as we get older 
um, slightly increases the, the likelihood of autism in the kid. Hmm. And, and some of the things that I'm seeing on this graph for risk factors um, have an interesting pattern, I think. So um, if you're born premature, more than nine weeks, interbirth interval, less than a year. So if mom has two kids within a year, that's a risk factor. Um, you know, we just mentioned the age thing. Uh, if, mom, if you have an uh, a mom that's emigrating or is in a hurricane strike zone, uh, those things would seem to, to imply that perhaps mom is under more stress. And these are things where my first guess is, well, it has something to do with the, the stress in the mother causing the in utero environment to be different. Do we know if that's the case or what some of those environmental in utero factors might be? It is not known what the mechanism is for these risk factors, um, but it is true that the thing that they have in common is severe stress. And so in the case of uh, interbirth interval, um, well, let's see, let's go with emigrating while pregnant. Um, in Scandinavian countries, there are birth registries where every birth is recorded and there's follow-up for virtually every birth. And so uh, it's been found in Scandinavian countries that uh, for women who are uh, emigrate, who come to Sweden while pregnant, that um, that if they uh, if they come to Sweden while pregnant, there is about a 2.3-fold increase, 2.3-fold risk of autism. Uh, and furthermore, that risk is larger if they come from far away. So for instance, if they come from another country in Europe, then the risk is smaller. If they come from sub-Saharan Africa, then the risk is larger. And you know, if you think about it, if you, if you grew up in sub-Saharan Africa and you moved to Sweden, I mean, that is a really different place. You show up and it's cold and it's like people eat this weird food and all kinds of things are going on in Sweden. And so if you're from, from Africa, this is like, wow, a very different place. And so um, similarly, if, you, uh, uh, if you're caught in a hurricane strike zone, and this is not just a bad storm, but caught in a severe storm where, say, you lose your home and you get displaced, um, that leads to a tripling of uh, autism risk. It leads to, it's been observed in a, in a study of, uh, of these moms. So it, I think it's a, a parsimonious explanation for these is that there's something about stress. You might expect that it might be sustained stress hormone signaling, but I will say that that is not known. Um, you can imagine studying it. I, it would be great to, I, I got to say, this could be studied. You can imagine um, studying moms who get in a hurricane strike zone and then say you could take samples of hair because cortisol gets, gets you know, accumulated in hair. And so you can imagine taking a hair sample and finding out how stressed mom got uh, and compare that with outcomes. And so it could be studied. Uh, to my knowledge, I think that's not been done. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, th I think stress is a pretty plausible hypothesis for how these things happen. And so um, the graph that we're looking at for those uh, on the audio, part of the point of this graph is to show what some of the risk factors are for autism, the things that increase your odds of getting autism compared to baseline. And so we're looking at things that are predominantly above baseline that increase your chances of getting autism. There is one thing on this graph that is right at or just below baseline. And I'm wondering if you could unpack why that's there and what we're looking at. Oh yeah. So this is a, this is a figure that's mainly meant to show what does cause autism. It's largely genetic, some uh, environmental, but there's one I stuck in there where I'm basically trolling people. And there's one risk factor that is slightly less than 1.0 X. And it is the risk associated with, um, with the baby getting the MMR vaccine. So as I'm sure most of your listeners know, 
there is a widespread belief that vaccination has something to do with autism. And so it turns out that this has been studied um, about a dozen times where people have taken large populations of kids who are vaccinated and compared them with population of kids who are not vaccinated. And it turns out there is virtually no difference in the rate of autism uh, between kids who are vaccinated uh, for, for this MMR vaccine and kids who are not vaccinated. And ironically, the risk of autism is slightly lower. It's not, it is not statistically significant, but it is slightly lower in kids who get the vaccine. So now I don't actually think that vaccination does anything to the risk of autism, but I love the fact that the, the risk factor here is 0.9x and therefore very slightly smaller than the general population. Interesting. So basically, if you just look at children who do and do not get the vaccine, there's no increased propensity for those who get the MMR vaccine to develop autism. None, none. And, um, and the way I would describe this whole slide, just synthesizing the whole thing, is that it appears that any, any risks that uh, in the environment that do increase the risk of autism appear to be in the second half of pregnancy up to birth, but not after birth. And it appears that, uh, that you know, there's all kinds of things that happen to us after birth. But for the most part, um, the only thing that can really lead a kid to end up being on the spectrum uh, after birth is severe deprivation, like really severe deprivation. Uh, and uh, and so, autism, uh, so vaccines are not part of the story. I see. So that's why like the Romanian orphanage bar is up there. That's what you mean by severe deprivation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like back in the Ceausescu regime, um, this is terrible. Um, Ceausescu, uh, the dictator uh, uh, in charge at the time, um, rightly said that a great a nation's greatest resource is its people. So that was good. Uh, but then he also said, therefore, everyone must have as many babies as possible. And so there are all these babies born in Romania, but there was, there were not enough resources to take care of those babies. And so there was a, there were a lot of abandoned babies and there were these orphanages that housed the babies that fed them, but didn't give them any social care, no, very little human interaction. And these terrible orphanages um, were, uh, the site of a natural experiment where, uh, where researchers went and looked at those kids and found that there was an eightfold increase um, in the rate of autism in the, among those kids. Uh, and, if, and especially among kids who, were, uh, who lived in those orphanages past the age of four, um, it was just very hard for them to recover afterwards. And so it supports the idea that there's some critical period of development that, um, that um, is necessary for, for normal wiring uh, refinement to take place. Mm -hmm. So if I had to summarize all of this so far, it would be that um, in terms of developing autism, the primary risk factor, the primary cause of autism is genetic. There are various in utero factors at play. Um, so what's going on during certain parts of pregnancy, especially are super important, but we don't really understand the details there. And there aren't a whole lot of risk factors that happen after birth, but those that are there tend to be extremely severe forms of deprivation, like the orphanage example. That's right. That's, that's, that's a perfect summary. Thank you. Um, I'll do my, before we move on, I'll do my best to uh, play devil's advocate here um, because this is such a hot button issue. So um, there are a lot of people that appears in the world who really, really believe in this idea that the vaccines have something to do with autism is it conceivable that someone could argue that 
okay, maybe overall there's no difference between the vaccine group and the no vaccine group, but maybe there's some sort of interaction where like a subset of people with some kind of genetic predisposition who also get the vaccine have something happen. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could come up with, okay. So the, the, the alternative you're suggesting is um, vaccines has some causative role, but they do not appear when you look at the entire population. But part of that statement, I think, to my knowledge, um, I mean, to my knowledge, that, that, that now we're into a zone where there's no evidence at all. Mm -hmm. So if you say to me, I have a hypothesis for which there is no evidence at all, I just don't know what to call that. I mean, at that point, um, those things could be true. But generally, in order for someone to really to entertain such an idea and take it seriously, there needs to be some kind of evidence that holds up to peer review, that holds up to statistical scrutiny. And to my knowledge, there just isn't any evidence like that. So I, I guess it could be true, um, but, um, but if there's no evidence for it, I don't really know what the reason is for, um, for pursuing it. And the other thing is, I think there's an opportunity cost, which is, look, it's, it's really important to help kids with autism lead the fullest lives they can. And time is finite and research resources are finite. And if we, spend our time going after something for which there is no evidence that takes time away from other things. It takes time away from developing therapies that might help kids, um, you know, get along in everyday life better. It takes time away from neuroscience research that say uh, determines whether uh, neocortical circuitry can be rescued. Um, there's all these things that we could do with research and to, to go off after this thing for which there's no evidence just seems to me, um, you know, to be counterproductive. I mean, you know, I think it'd be nice to help these kids. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it'd be helpful to go uh, in directions where the risks are largest. And so the reason I constructed this slide, which I'll take down now, the reason I, I constructed this slide is to, just to show people what the biggest risk factors are. And I think, it, I think we have a responsibility as, as caregivers, as parents, as researchers, um, to go after the big things first. Um, and, um, you know, I, I look, vaccination is like, it's kind of terrible if you if you ever taken your kid in for a vaccination, you know. Sometimes the kid cries and hates it, and ah, oh, you know, everything was great. And I took my kid in. This is the one thing I ever did for my kid who to like make her cry, and it just you know that that doesn't feel good, right? Who wants to make their kid cry? And so you can kind of see why people would feel that way, but you know, the, it doesn't change the fact that there's just not support for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that that what you were just showing us in the data was that you know, very clearly the biggest risk factors are either genetic genetic or uh, pre-birth factors. And so if there was some sort of post-birth factor like a vaccine, it would have to be so, so strong in its effect that you would think that we would have seen some unmistakable signal for it by now. Yeah, I think I, I, there's just not. And I and given the, the, the preponderance of evidence, the, the pattern of all the significant risk factors, um, the, the overall pattern has to do with events before birth and has to do with uh, stressful events and with genetics. And given that overall pattern, it strikes me that um, as we start to build a framework for autism, it's, it's a little bit more like our genome sets the stage for how we process information in the world. It sets the stage for how we learn from sensory experience. And that program of development can be driven off track by stress and that whatever the outcome of that is leads to a developing brain that then learns from the world from say age zero to two. 
And I think that storyline that I just told accounts for most of what we know about autism. And then there are, you know, many interesting details about what causes autism. Um, but broadly speaking, um, I think that story I just told um, uh, captures a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So as we mentioned, genetics play a big role. The number one risk factor by a healthy margin was having an identical twin, someone with your same genome that is autistic. Um, nonetheless, there was something interesting in one of your papers that I want to read here. And then I want to start sort of connecting the autism story to some of the brain stuff a little bit more. So in one of the papers, it says, quote, uh, most autistic children have two neurotypical parents. First degree relatives of persons with autism spectrum disorder often show distinctive mental traits, including unusual social and emotional characteristics and interest in technical subjects, indicating that these disorders, uh, there's risk genes that may drive variations in outcome within the normal range. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? So even though genetics play a big role, um, most autistic individuals, the majority, have two neurotypical parents, and yet there are these associations with their first-degree relatives. So let's, what are some of those things? Oh, yeah, this is such an interesting topic. So let's see. So um, there's this puzzle that might come up in one's mind, which is that if autism is genetic, then why is it that we do not see autism running in families? And it turns out that I would say a lot of the causation of, of autism is uh, consistent with individual genes not having much effect, but combinations of genes leading to autism. And so, for instance, in cancer biology, we ha- there's an idea that people talk about called the two-hit hypothesis, where two genetic hits or one genetic hit and one environmental hit can lead to a higher risk of cancer. So one possibility is that maybe these genes, like imagine human development as like a cloud of outcomes. We're all different from each other and we're all different in different ways. Maybe somebody's better at math or more interested in art or more interested in sports or what have you. And imagine this cloud of diversity that makes up who we are. And now imagine if we get up far enough out on that cloud, then we get called autistic or ADHD or developmentally delayed or what have you. So these genes in combinations might lead to autism, but maybe they do something individually. And what my um, what one of my students and I found was we surveyed a bunch of people and we found that it was quite often the case that autism was found in first degree relatives of people with an interest in science and engineering. And so if you looked uh, in people who are in, who, college freshmen with an interest in science technology, engineering, or math, right? STEM disciplines. Those freshmen were twice as likely to have um, siblings or even a parent on the autism spectrum than their classmates. And so that suggests the possibility that there might be some gene or multiple genes that increase the likelihood of interest in science and in certain circumstances, increase the likelihood of autism. So the idea would be that we have a diversity, you know, some people are interested in science. Some people would love to listen to this podcast. And then other people, I don't know, they would just assume listen to a podcast on say Renaissance painting or something like that. And so different people might have different interests. And the survey results suggest the possibility that um, that science interests and autism might run together in families. Well, we weren't the first to do this. It turns out that um, 
there was this guy uh, in the UK, Simon Baron Cohen. And Simon Baron Cohen also uh, found the same thing in a different population of people. Um, I should uh, say that we also found um, uh, something like this in populations of people who are non-college students. And so we found it not, not just in college students, but also uh, people who didn't go to college. So, so the idea is basically that the genetic predisposition here um, is really playing with minor variations in a variety of genes such that you're, you're sort of playing at the boundaries of what the normal, the normal distribution of traits are among people. Right. So if, if, so imagine a normal range where, you know, someone is unusually interested in science. Uh, I would characterize myself as being unusually, unusually interested in science enough to pick it up, to do it for a living. And so here I am like at the end of the spectrum of science interest. Uh, likewise, you can imagine um, people with, um, you know, autism uh, are at the extreme of, of how they interact with other people. Um, one observation that's been around for a while is uh, an old result that, um, that fathers of kids with autism um, are, unusually, um, are unusually less interested in, uh, in other people and, and so on. There's a thing called the broader autism phenotype. And if you do a Google Scholar search on broader autism phenotype, there's a survey that has questions on it like, um, I have trouble telling when people are not interested in what I'm saying, or um, I tend to have single interests to the exclusion of other topics. Uh, and people who score high on that inventory um, are more likely to um, to have siblings or children with autism. Hmm. So there's something there's something uh, this broader autism phenotype um, might coincide. Uh, uh, there appears to be reasonably good evidence that it coincides with uh, with the causes of autism. Hmm. And then you commonly hear that there are sex differences here, that autism is more common in males than females. Is that true? And, and if so, what is that telling us? Yes, um, autism is currently diagnosed about four times as frequently in boys than it is in girls. Um, that's something that's true in multiple countries. Um, it's not true um, for extreme cases. So if you look at extreme autism, the sex ratio of extreme autism is about one to one, equal between boys and girls. So um, yeah, so what's going on there? Uh, uh, it's possible that there's something about the genetic background or the developmental background of boys versus girls that pushes kids towards different kinds of outcomes. If you think about uh, small children's tendencies when they are very small, um, even from a very early age, girls more often than boys have a tendency to be interested in doll type toys and toys uh, that involve human interaction. And boys, are on average uh, are more likely to be interested in tool toys like pushing a truck or a hammer or whatever it might be. And so it could be that because of this sex difference that emerges very early in life, that might be one source of difference among humans. And then add on top of that specific genes that might increase the risk of autism. You could easily imagine that this, uh, that this naturally occurring uh, predisposition between boys and girls might be a starting point from which autism can uh, can progress. Mm -hmm. So if I had to sort of summarize at a very high level so far, some of the things we've been talking about, it's that autism has a very large genetic component. Um, the genes and the proteins involved here very often have something to do with uh, plasticity in the brain. And very often these individuals have a kind of hyper sensitivity to the sensory environment. And this hypersensitivity perhaps 
is a cause or a driver of why such an individual will often want to focus in on a narrow range of things. So another way of saying that might be that, you know, if I have autism and the world is overwhelming to me and there's this sort of sensory overload, one way to cope with that is to sort of zoom in and focus on one thing so that I don't have to deal with all of that overload. And at that point, if that's the habit that your brain is sort of uh, uh, incentivizing you to have very early in life, that's then gonna affect the subsequent trajectory of your brain development. So it brings to mind the concept for me of developmental canalization. And I wonder here if this is a good place to think about um, how you and others think about treatment options, because it would seem to me that um, the earlier on you could treat something like the, the excess number of synapses or something, the, the more likely it would be to actually be a beneficial therapy. So how do we think about therapy here and when, when we would uh, want to think about therapeutic interventions? Oh, this is very interesting. Um, right. So what can we do for kids who are heading down uh, the path towards autism? Like what can we do to maximize the quality of their lives later on? Um, so the one therapy that I know of that seems to have a reasonably high likelihood of success is something called applied behavioral analysis. And, uh, and it's just one of a category of cognitive therapies where you work with kids many hours a day and you just teach them very slowly, you slow down the world and you just show them that a voice goes with the reward. And so therefore they should like the voice or you show them one's event leading to a social consequence. And as far as I can tell, a lot of applied behavioral analysis consists of just slowing down the world and then just teaching kids stepwise event A leads to event B and then rewarding them for it and doing it just for many hours a day, day after day. This is an intensive therapy. Mm -hmm. and, so, um, and so the idea would be that if it's difficult to make sense of the world, if the world is very intense, if it's hard to make predictions about the world, maybe it would be nice to just give the kid an environment where these events happen more slowly, uh, they can form more easily form prior views about the world. Uh, there are some cognitive scientists who, who call autism a, possibly a disorder of uh, hypo priors, where it's just really difficult to have prior beliefs about the world. And so if you teach them slowly enough, then you teach them priors and they can learn about the world. So that's the therapy that works. And, um, and, you know, one could easily imagine maybe someday we will be able to uh, come up with therapies that can, uh, that can accentuate that process. Maybe we can uh, improve synaptic pruning. Um, if cerebellum is a cause of autism, you can imagine maybe putting a stimulator. I mean, okay, now we're getting very speculative here, but you can imagine something that you do say to the cerebellum that, that would somehow help with that process. Um, I have no idea what that something would be, but you can imagine uh, that stimulation or inhibition of some kind could be assistive and maybe enhance the likelihood of, uh, of cognitive therapy being helpful for kids. Uh, and the, the other thing is, to your point, um, I think the one thing that we do that is believed fairly widely among people who work with kids with autism based on uh, the research is that therapy is best given in the first few years of life. So between age one and six is when those synapses are, uh, are at the highest rate of being uh, uh, pruned and eliminated. And so there's a belief that really giving these therapies should happen as early as possible uh, in, in small children. Hmm. There's something interesting here that's coming to mind. So if the basic idea with why an intervention like this um, works is you're, you know, you're essentially making this overwhelming sensory environment less overwhelming 
And by doing that early, the development of the child will be affected such that they'll, they'll develop less extreme autistic phenotypes. So the sensory world is over, overwhelming because of these inborn uh, uh, things in the brain. And that is causing this overwhelming environment to lead the, to this sort of narrow focus, which is then gonna impact development further. And, and you're gonna get autistic phenotypes more strongly. So the idea is simplify the external environment and thereby um, help treat the, the autistic individual's brain that way. So is the flip side of this, I wonder if this actually connects to why we're why we've seen an increase in autism diagnoses over time. Is it because the environment itself, the background environment for humans, is becoming more overwhelming overall? Um, I don't think there's good support for that. Um, it is true that the reported rate of autism has gone up over time, but epidemiologists are of the opinion that the reason for this is not that the true rate of autism is going up, mm. but that our, the quality of care that we give to kids or the availability of diagnostic resources um, and, um, and options has gone up. So for example, um, in New Jersey, where I am, the reported rate of autism is something like one in 40, which is quite high. It's three times as high in New Jersey as it is in Alabama. And so that's funny. Like, why would the rate of autism in Alabama be one third what it is in New Jersey? It seems unusual since New Jersey and Alabama are in the same country. Um, but a plausible explanation might be, well, um, the, the approaches to diagnosing kids and the approaches to early childhood care are pretty different in New Jersey and in Alabama. And you can imagine that, in fact, there are kids who, if they were brought up in New Jersey, might go into the pediatrician and the pediatrician would say, yeah, uh, we've noticed something here and you, you know, we wanted to flag it for your attention. And so you can imagine that the availability of healthcare and the approach to diagnostics could have a pretty large influence. Uh, I'll give you one example of, um, of another example of, of why I think this. Um, in the last few decades, the reported rate of autism has gone up, but the reported rate of mental retardation has gone down. So why is that? Like, autism going up, mental retardation going down. There's a phenomenon that epidemiologists call diagnostic substitution. And so the idea there is that, you know, 20 years ago, we would have called a kid uh, mentally retarded, um, but now there are different treatment options. Now there are things that can be done where we, where we would, if we were to help a kid with Down syndrome, or we were to help a kid with developmental delay, or we were to help a kid with autism spectrum disorder, we might do different things to help those kids. And the fact that the treatment options are different for those kids might actually be a major driver for uh, what box we put kids in, because we're trying to find ways to help kids as optimally as possible. And so, uh, so I think there are good reasons to suspect that the true rate of autism is not changing. Hmm, interesting. So the true rate of autism is not changing. It's just sort of our ability to, to recognize and treat it. It's getting That's better right. over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I should say that I think there's more pressure to that uh, on that in the future. Um, one, if it's true that early intervention can help, one thing that we may look to in the future is finding ways to identify kids who could benefit from that attention as early as possible. So you can imagine that if we could, say, develop a, a, you know, a mobile app that could help diagnose um, possible risk and make that available to parents in Alabama, that might be helpful to parents in Alabama because in fact, if they don't have access to a pediatrician who can tell them, they can at least try you know, finding out some of these other things 
uh, and see whether there's a risk and just maybe um, think of ways to be helpful to those kids as they're, as they're growing and, and getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you, well, is there anything that you want to say before we move away from, from brain stuff? Is there anything you want to discuss further on the topic of either the cerebellum and or autism or some sort of just overall takeaway that you think you might want to give people? Well, only that these are, uh, you know, on their surface, pretty, um, pretty different topics, but my laboratory is a basic neuroscience research lab. And we are very interested in the circuit basis of how the cerebellum might account for all these things that we've been talking about at a, at a high level and a, at, a, at a level of generality. In my lab, we're very interested in how the cerebellum might be a predictor of the next split second, where it takes all that input, makes predictions about the future, and guides action or guides thought or guides development. And, uh, and that's something that we're super excited about. Um, and I would say that although we've spent a lot of time talking about autism, um, my hope is that by understanding the basic neuroscience of it, that'll be a way in to really knowing what autism is and also what it means to be neurotypical um, at a pretty deep level. And I think that um, I think that neuroscience is at a point where it's possible to start connecting the dots between cellular and circuit mechanisms and what it means to be diverse in our, in our neural, in our neural systems. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And what's also interesting about you is you seem to have, and I didn't do too much reading here, but you seem to have this sort of other side to your professional life. So you're not just running the science lab and doing the hardcore science stuff. You're also using data science and and some of the tools of science to address things that have to do with our democracy. Oh, yes. you have something called the Electoral Innovation Lab. So, so what is this, and why are why are you also doing all of this stuff? Oh boy. Okay, that is a totally different topic. So let's see. So let's uh, pause and say that the thing that's shared is that my background's in physics. Uh, I these days often call myself a data scientist because that phrase has entered the language in the last few years. Uh, and so fundamentally, a lot of what we've talked about is me and my uh, and my lab members using data analysis methods, uh, whether it be statistics or modeling or machine learning or machine vision to all to understand cerebellar function. And so that's just a general thing that we do. And uh, yes, there's this other thing I do that's, I would say pretty entirely different, which is to use data and science to understand our democracy here in the United States and to find ways to make it work better, to help rescue it, repair it, and uh, make it work a little bit better. But yes, I have an entirely different group uh, that is uh, that is parallel and separate from my neuroscience group. And what we do there is we work on basically the science of democracy. Hmm. And and what is that? What does that mean to, to even talk about the science of democracy? Uh, it means a few different things. So uh, let's see. So an example is something that's very much on people's minds as we're recording this, which is redistricting and gerrymandering. Every 10 years in the United States, Uh, basically all the electoral districts of the United States get redrawn uh, because we have a system in the U.S. of um, legislators being uh, elected from a single district, where it be a congressional district or whether it be a legislative district or even county districts. And so these districts elect individual legislators. Um, They are redrawn every decade because the law requires that each district have equal population within a state. And because of that redrawing process, there's this, uh, let's call it a creative process of figuring out which people go with which go together in a district. 
And it turns out that that is a highly technical and mathematical subject. And it also turns out that that is a process that can be manipulated by the people who are, who are themselves elected. In most states in the United States, legislators themselves are in charge of drawing the districts, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, and, and so what my team works on, among other things, is we have a project to prevent abuses of that process. And abuses of that process are called gerrymandering. Uh, after a governor of Massachusetts, who who the process is named the practice is named after Elbridge Gerry, so the idea is that math and data go into committing the offense of drawing advantageous districts, um, and go into the process of, of of politicians picking their voters instead of what should be the case, which is voters picking their politicians. So anyway, to the point, my team and I have been working on mathematical standards to identify gerrymandering. We've been working on data tools that the citizens can use to diagnose gerrymandering. We've come up with a report card showing different ways that a map can be bad for citizens. And these are tools that we're giving people so that they can fight back and give input. So journalists can tell stories about it. So citizens can weigh in mm-hmm. so that, uh, that, that Democrats and Republicans can uh, either fight one another or work together to create a better map. And so the idea is that all of this requires data and I've got a whole team of people working on that uh, pretty hard right now. Interesting. So let's take this piece by piece. So, <laughs> yeah. So first, let's let's give a let's give people a sense for the magnitude of the gerrymandering problem. Can you connect that to something like the um, the likelihood of an incumbent winning an election and how much that's tied to this? Yeah. So let's see. So. Um, because of geogra- geographic factors, um, a lot of congressional seats in the United States are not competitive just because, you know, maybe a lot of Democrats live together in a city or a lot of Republicans live near one another in a rural area. And broadly speaking, about one in seven congressional seats uh, natu- would be naturally competitive if you just drew lines without regard to partisanship. But if by being creative in the drawing of those lines, you can make a district. Republican or 55% Democratic. And if you do that, using data, it becomes possible to eliminate virtually all the competition. So what little competition there is can be eliminated by creative drawing of districts, which basically is an employment guarantee for the legislators who who represent those districts. Furthermore, you can actually um, create these massive inequities. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, North Carolina is a state that has a 14 seat congressional delegation. And it's a closely divided uh, state. So you can imagine that a fair outcome would be to say have uh, seven Democrats and seven Republicans represent North Carolina in Congress, or maybe eight Democrats or eight Republicans. The actual map that's being drawn right now um, is likely to send 10 Republicans and four Democrats to Congress. And that is a massive asymmetry where basically something like half the seats of a state are up for grabs, not based on how they vote, but based on how the lines are drawn. And so now we have a weird situation in which um, members of Congress become impervious to the will of the voters. Mm. And it doesn't matter how people vote. The only thing that matters is who drew the lines. And so this this huge inequity um, has been terrible in places like North Carolina, Ohio. Those are places where Republicans have been in charge of drawing the lines. Uh, It's pretty terrible in Illinois where Democrats are in charge of drawing the lines. But in either case, competition is suppressed 
and it um, and it becomes almost impossible for a challenger to win an election. Okay, so it's a pretty big problem. I think okay. we have a good sense of that now. Let's go back to like first principles and the data. So starting from first principles, how do you use data to construct? How would you use, or are you guys using data to construct ideal, objective, nonpartisan maps? So the way it works is this: um, It used to be that election data was uh, hard to get, held privately. You'd use uh, proprietary software and you'd have to have a lot of expertise to draw those maps. And so what we're doing is, uh, we and others around the country are doing is the following. Um, we're gathering public data about how people vote, whether they vote for Democrats and Republicans. We gather that on a precinct by precinct basis. Precinct is a, is a district, a little zone where people cast votes and they're counted together. We make that data publicly available. There's public software that allows people to use that data. Um, one such famous piece of software is called Dave's redistricting app. And these softwares are free and available to the public. We ourselves on my team have, uh, have come up with uh, standards, statistical standards that show when a map has gotten lopsided. So we have um, statistical standards that identify rigorously when a map is out of whack. Or another thing we do is we have a computer assisted algorithm, draw a million different alternatives for a state. And we can find out whether a map is extreme relative to those million automatically generated alternatives. And if it's extreme relative to those million alternatives, then we can argue to a court or to a journalist or to a legislator, hey, you did something out of line here. So uh, the general idea is to put these tools in the hands of citizens, of journalists, uh, of legislators, of redistricting commissioners. And we even have something that's a simple thing, uh, a, a fairness report card. And if people want to read about it, they can go to gerrymander.princeton.edu and read about the simple report card. So this is just an example of something we're working on pretty hard right now to basically find a way to blow open the process and make it as transparent as possible, uh, basically using the math and computational tools, um, which often overlap with my neuroscience mm -hmm. research. So there's an obvious tension here. I mean, we are talking about politics after all. So you're using data and science to build tools to empower all of various types, journalists, uh, voters themselves, etc., with the ability to put pressure on the people that are drawing these uh, lopsided districts. But the people doing that are themselves doing it to retain power. So it's a direct threat to their power. How do you have any good examples of, of success here so far? This is a hard fight. And so there are several examples of this. Um, one example is there's been an outburst of reform across the country. So there are states that have passed reform that have taken the power of redistricting out of the hands of legislators and put it in the hands of citizen commissions. That's happened in Virginia. It's happened in Michigan, Arizona, California, New Mexico. Uh, these are all states where citizen commissions are in charge of drawing the lines. And so that would be one example uh, of a case where there's been there, there's been improvements. Uh, and in several of those cases, it's new since the, like a decade ago was the worst round of partisan gerrymandering ever in the United States. Uh, that was 10 years ago. Uh, and, and many of those offenses will not occur again because of these commissions. And so I'd say Michigan and Virginia are examples of, uh, of significant improvements. Colorado is another example of, of an improved process. So, Another, so lines were redrawn there, and that that should that had something probably major to do with the outcome of subsequent elections. Yes, those are states uh, 
There are states where the majority of voters voted for one party and the majority of legislators came from the other party. Mm. Uh, Wisconsin is a case where uh, something like two thirds of the legislators are Republican, despite the fact that even if more people vote for the Democratic candidates in Wisconsin, uh, something like 63 out of 99 state legislators are Republicans. So that's a case where that happens. Michigan's another example. North Carolina is another example. Uh, all cases where competition is reduced and representation is out of whack with how people vote. Interesting. Um, so are there any are there any particular states right now where you guys are focused on? Like, are there some really states in terms of gerrymandering where, where you're trying to move the needle? We are focused on different states. And so um, when it comes to gerrymandering, uh, I mean, we this 50 state, this report card that I described, we're deploying in all 50 states. Um, but there are certain states where there is more possibility of getting leverage, more possibility of either getting a better outcome, more possibility of casting a light on the process. Uh, it's some of the states I've mentioned before. We were, we're very interested in Michigan, Wisconsin, Virginia, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, um, Texas. Uh, these are all states where we're super interested. And there's other states we, we haven't even talked about where um, we're interested in other ways to improve democracy as well, where maybe it's possible to change the way that people vote using tools like ranked choice voting. And there's other states like Maine and Alaska where alternative voting rules might, uh, might uh, trim off the extremes and make elected politicians less extreme relative to how they would be uh, under existing rules. And where can people go to see these report cards and, and see what you guys are doing? Uh, well, we uh, there's two places they can look, uh, gerrymander.princeton.edu, that's G-E-R-R-Y-M-A-N-D-E-R.princeton.edu. And we also work on democracy. We are interested in using all the tools of cognitive science, political science, computer science, and math to, uh, to improve democracy. And uh, that one you can look up at democracy.princeton.edu. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you so far. Do you have any final thoughts overall that you want to leave people with? No, I'm very impressed that we talked about this whole range of topics. I, uh, I was not necessarily expecting that, but it is an impressive range. And I got to say, it fits with what I know about the podcast, but, uh, but seeing it in action is another thing entirely. Great. Well, Professor Sam Wong, thank you for your time. Thank you.